Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations and debates hosted by the center in person at Online. I'm Tanea Tauber, the Senior Director of Town Hall Programs. In this episode, we explore the ways key African-American intellectuals reimagine U.S. democracy from David Walker and Frederick Douglass to W.B. Du Bois. New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie and political scientist Melvin Rogers, author of the new book, The Dark and Light of Faith, Race, Democracy, and Freedom in African-American Political Thought, join Thomas Donnelly, Chief Content Officer at the National Constitution Center, for the conversation. This program was streamed live on November 14, 2023. Here's Tom to get the conversation started. Hello, friends. Welcome to the National Constitution Center and to tonight's convening of America's Town Hall for this wonderful discussion. First, we have Jamel Bowie. He is a, an opinion columnist for The New York Times, where he covers history and politics, a former political analyst for C- CBS News, He previously served as chief political correspondent for Slate Magazine and staff writer at the Daily Beast. He's also in the regular uh, flow of the reading that I do each week. So thank you so much for joining us, Jamel. And Melvin Rogers is professor of political science and associate director of the Center for Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Brown University. His extraordinary new book, which we're going to discuss today, is The Darkened Light of Faith, Race, Democracy and Freedom in African-American Political Thought. I really can't recommend this book highly enough. It's extraordinarily illuminating, and I can't wait to explore it with Melvin and Jamel during the course of the discussion. So thank you again for joining us, Jamel Bowie and Melvin Rogers. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. So beginning with you, uh, Professor Rogers, your new book, again, is The Darkened Light of Faith. It offers a powerful account of the Black intellectual tradition from antebellum America all the way up to the 20th century. Just want to begin by asking you, what what inspired you to write this book now? Right. So I've been, uh, I was working on the book, um, I I would say for about a a decade. Um, And what motivated the book um, was really uh, my first book project, which was on uh, the American philosopher John Dewey. Uh, And central to that project was the idea of uncertainty that John Dewey uh, sort of emphasize as being central to democratic politics. And once I concluded that book, um, my, my thought was that Dewey had laid out philosophically the importance of uncertainty, but who has sort of lived it uh, in an immediate way. Um, and though there were, there were a whole host of figures I could turn to and traditions I could turn to, uh, I turned to the tradition of African-American political thought and the lessons that are derived from their confrontation with uh, a kind of fundamental uncertainty and vulnerability in American life. Excellent. Now, Jamel Bowie, you've written and spoken powerfully about the Black intellectual tradition in your own work. How has it influenced your work as a political journalist and also as a public intellectual? You know, I think that, and I'm going to borrow a phrase from an edited volume Professor Rogers um, uh, worked on you know, a couple of years ago. Um, I think in the introductory essay, uh, you used this phrasing, um, to, to me, you know, the African-American intellectual tradition, which is like broad and encompasses a lot of different avenues and a lot of ways acts as sort of a counter public, the kind of mainstream um, uh, American thinking about this country, about, the, the, about what American democracy is. And so as someone whose uh, work at the Times 
is very much interested both in sort of like the day-to-day of American democracy and American democratic life, but also as much as I can pulling back and thinking broadly about American democracy. I think the African-American political tradition provides a incredibly useful perspective, basically the perspective of insiders who are still yet outside as well um, and can uh, 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 turn a more critical eye to things that um, I think many Americans take for granted. Insiders who are also political outsiders, it's, it's excellent. Melvin Rogers, you know, one other thing, near the beginning of your book, you introduced really two ways of looking at the struggle over race throughout American history. You contrast a vision of pessimism uh, with what you describe as a romantic story of inevitable progress. And at the same time, throughout your book, you really also emphasize the important role that faith, aspiration, and imagination play in the in the vision of so many of the thinkers that you cover, just to sort of frame our discussion before we drill down into the thought of some of those specific thinkers. Can you talk about some of those key themes um, and the role that they play in your account? Sure. So um, I, I think sort of in contemporary intellectual and even you know public discussions around uh, racial justice, uh, responding to racial inequality, uh, there are two sort of dominant forms, I think, that animate our discussion. I mean, on the one side, um, there is this sense that sort of anti-Black racism is constitutive and foundational of the United States, and that white supremacy uh, is really sort of the animating tr- tradition of the United States. And thus, we cycle uh, sort of in and out of the primacy, the centrality of anti-Black racism and white supremacy but, but the reason why this is the case is precisely because it is taken to be constitutive. And so if it's taken to be constitutive, one argument is, well, why invest in trying to transform the, the nation? Uh, isn't this holding out a form of, you know, a, a, a form of, of cruel hope um, that, never, that never satisfies? I mean, the problem with sort of this description of the issue is that the notion of of freedom, the notion of agency, the possibility of transformation just cannot get on the table. And the fact remains is that everyday ordinary Black people are still trying to um, get on with their lives, right? And so you don't want, um, and we must avoid at all costs, opting out of politics. But I think on the other side, uh, in part because of, of the kind of mythos of the United States, our sense of uh, of exceptionalism, our sense that we're always on the march forward. I mean, we that side of the story has a way of uh, sort of uh, sort of um, rendering the persistence of racial inequality as anomalous to the country, rather than seeing it as part of the the tradition of American life that we're constantly fighting against. And and this side, this more romantic side. In, in sort of rendering the problem of racial inequality as anomalous, it doesn't take seriously the horror of our history and the way in which it keeps displaying itself in time. And so the book tries to open up this middle space. And in opening up this middle space, the book tries to sort of illuminate the philosophical resources that these figures from the 1830s to the 1960s are relying on in order to um, manage the persistence of inequality. And it also insists in the final analysis 
that given the fact that there's often a great deal of evidence pointing against uh, the possibility that America can transform in a deep um, and permanent way, there is a question about, well, ultimately, what is what's sort of fueling these, these figures? And, and uh, I suggest that faith is at work. And faith, not necessarily in a religious sense, faith in, in, in this sense, that, that, that faith is about a kind of running ahead of the evidence that you often need to justify the stance that you take. And, and yet that running ahead is central. Uh, it is part of the process of bringing transformation into existence in the first place. Excellent. So we have a, a few big themes on the table, pessimism, a certain form of optimism about the inevitability of progress, faith. Uh, Jamel Bowie, are there any other big themes from the African-American political tradition that, that you'd like to place on the table before we uh, turn to some of our thinkers? I think what I want to do is just sort of bolster a point Professor Rogers made um, with with an historical example, and that is, you know, we we tend to think of antebellum American politics as being first like an entirely white American affair that Black Americans aren't really involved in it in any meaningful way, and we tend to imagine Black Americans uh, to the extent that we're thinking of even free Blacks, right, as like not. You know, they're, they're sort of on the margins. But um, one of the great revelations, revelation, one of the great things that she explores in, in a recent book, uh, the historian Kate Mazur in her book, um, Till Justice Be Done, is the extent to which black free, free Black communities in Ohio and Massachusetts and New York and Pennsylvania were like very active participants in ordinary politics, not, not only uh, activism as we would recognize or understand it, not only um, uh, kind of moral suasion, but actively making appeals to legislatures, actively organizing once um, a polit- political parties begin emerging that are opposing slavery, actively organizing within those political parties, actively working to repeal anti-Black laws in the states in which they reside. And I think um, to Professor Rogers's sort of points and observations, it, all of that raises a question, right? Sort of what is animating this? These are people who are living under conditions that we would that are like uh, we would call tyranny, right? They uh, are, are living under quite dire political conditions, and yet they're still engaged in ordinary politics, right? The day to day, somewhat unremarkable uh, uh, task of trying to persuade other people, uh, and I think I think. Taking that seriously, right, is a thing that's really important to do. Absolutely. Can I say a word about that wonderful historical example? Yes, absolutely. Uh, first of all, Jamel, this is just, you know, this is what you always do in your columns, and I love it. Um, <laughs> the way he sort of extracts from um, what folks are doing in the academy and then translating it. It's absolutely brilliant, and I so appreciate you. So when he says, you know, what's motivating these these folks, you know, how must, you know, another way to think about this is like, how must they understand the political landscape such that, such that um, they're engaged in these practices? And one of the things that it reveals is that from their perspective, what American democracy is, is not a settled product. And that they see themselves as participating in and attempting to lay claim to a tradition that they themselves uh, claim as also theirs. 
And this is something that we that 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 we sort of should never obscure or miss, because if you think that 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 anti-black racism is constitutive of the United States and that it wholly defines the tradition, then it raises a critical question: What do we make of these people? How do we make sense of them? Because on that description, they will have no space. So we need another way to tell the story of American democracy and the fight over it that brings these folks clearly into view, not as outsiders of the tradition, but as warriors within it battling for uh, uh, for it. Such a great transition to our our first thinker here, and which really embodies a lot of what you're saying, which was uh, which is David Walker. Um, so in your account, you spend Professor Rogers spent a good a good amount of time exploring David Walker, his 1829 appeal. Uh, as you note, uh, Frederick Douglass later described the pamphlet as quote startling the land like a trump of coming judgment. So Walker is a figure that's familiar to many scholars, but I think isn't quite as familiar to the American public. Somehow he's been lost in a lot of ways, to public memory. Um, so, you know, can you just tell us a bit about David Walker himself, his appeal, and then also some of the reaction to the appeal in his own time? Right. So so David Walker is born in 1796, um, Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, his mother is free, so his freedom follows, uh, follows her line. And then he makes his way up uh, north and lands in Boston about 18, 1825. There's a small Boston community there. Um, he's a secondhand clothing dealer. But as he is sort of making his way north, he's being politicized. And uh, he writes this, uh, this pamphlet uh, in 1829. This is his attempt to strike a blow at uh, slavery, both the sort of formal practices of enslavement in the South and the informal practices of domination that Black people are experiencing uh, in the North. And he writes this, uh, what was at the time considered this incendiary pamphlet. I mean, Walker's uh, uh, appeal uh, makes its way, it makes its way back South and it antagonizes um, uh, politicians in Georgia and North Carolina. Um, there are anti-literacy laws that are being passed, laws banning, banning incendiary um, uh, documents are being, are being passed. And, and they're being passed because at the heart of the, of, of the text uh, is precisely the kind of revolutionary impulse that you, can, that you see in 1776. Um, but now Walker calling on uh, Black people to judge the circumstances in which they find themselves and to deem them at odds with um, their natural freedom and to resist uh, in the face of these practices of domination. So it was a text that was meant to um, uh, uh, to uh, stimulate action on the part of, of Black Americans in the face of, of practices of domination and to stimulate action as the sort of entailment or the requirement of what it means to uh, be a human being who takes themselves uh, uh, to 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 be to be worthy of freedom by virtue of being a human being, and and Jamel Bowie, you know, part of David Walker's appeal is his appeal to foundational values like Christianity, like America's founding principles, including especially the Declaration of Independence. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of those foundational values to 
Walker's arguments in this powerful document, and then more broadly, how much those sort of foundational uh, uh, principles of the of, of America's founding, also of Christianity itself, shaped the battle uh, that other reformers during the era had against slavery and in favor of equal citizenship rights for African Americans. Well, I think Walker is using the founding documents, using the language of revolutionary America in a way that would be familiar, right, to anyone who would at least read um, MLK's March on Washington speech, right? Sort of this is part of the language of civic life in the United States. This is something that can make the claim legible to um, uh, to readers, to observers, to people um, who might be encountering the appeal. It's also sort of situating, right? This is one of one of the one of the the um, threads in this period in American history and African American history is not simply making a claim for rights, but making a claim on citizenship, making a claim on national belonging, stating right that we are not aliens to this country, that this country is in fact ours as well, and thus we have a right to make claims on it. We have a right to make demands on it. So using the language of revolutionary America is like very much part and, and parcel of that. With regards to the, the your um, uh, your second question, you know, obviously, sort of the the Christian theological tradition has been um, part was a part of anti slavery movements from the very beginning, some of the earliest, right? Like uh, British and and uh, Anglo American opponents of the slave trade were Quakers. Um, the Great Awakenings also produced sort of anti-slavery uh, fervor in the Americas and in Great Britain. Um, all of this is sort of part of the stew. What sort of makes the late 18th century this um, somewhat explosive period for the anti-slavery movement is it's a period of religious revival and ideological uh, transformation uh, that is pushing a lot of people on both sides of the Atlantic to like reconsider um, their commitment to slavery. Not sometimes commitment to to notions of of racial difference and racial inequality. Like that's still you know not people go both ways on that. But at least with slavery, there's a real sense, a real emerging sense in a way that there hadn't quite been before um, uh, of the fundamental incompa- incompatibility of the slave trade. Uh, and slavery with the project that's emerging. It's of course like worth saying though. It's like this is the the caveat you always have to make that those things were the case, but then also the practical consequence of um, the separation of the North American colonies from Great Britain was like an empowered set of North American slave owners with its own set of consequences. It's just like you know that's what happened, Professor uh, Rogers. You know despite. Walker's reliance on the Declaration of Independence, he also takes on the legacy of Thomas Jefferson in his appeal, in particular Jefferson's account of African Americans in the notes on the state of Virginia. So Walker concludes here, what he says is, Mr. Jefferson has in truth injured us more and has been as great a barrier to our emancipation as anything that has ever been advanced against us. Can you talk a bit about the importance of Jefferson's notes and also Walker's reasons for casting so much blame on on, on Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, so, you know, Walker is um, not unfamiliar with 
uh, sort of what is required and what is demanded in order to move your audience. So he's rhetorically sophisticated. And part of what's required to move your audience from one side to another, part of what's required is meeting them where they stand with their bundle of commitments and beliefs and ideas, ideas about their own tradition. And when Walker goes after uh, Jefferson in several portions of the appeal, he's particularly interested in uh, what Jefferson has to say about Black people in the notes on the state of Virginia. And in the notes on the state of Virginia, uh, Jefferson engages in a kind of pseudo-scientific inquiry uh, into the humanity of Black people and, and their fitness for um, a participation in the American Republic. And he deems Black people to be um, uh, inadequate in relation to their white counterparts. Jefferson has, of course, a separate argument about uh, freeing African Americans and sending them elsewhere so that they can sort of chart their own, uh, chart their own uh, course. But as he sees it, um, uh, they're deficient uh, for participating in the American Republic. And Walker, knowing the status of Jefferson in the imaginary of uh, uh, white Americans and in the imaginary of the United States, goes directly after him, right? And there are two things that are going on there. One, um, uh, uh, you know, one, David Walker is trying to sort of undermine uh, Jefferson's uh, arguments, but it should not be striking that the appeal itself is broken up into what he calls four articles. Um, and there's a way in which it's sort of reminiscent in that regard of the Constitution. And it simultaneously situates and focuses on the logic of the Declaration as part of the animating force, right, that is fueling Walker's argument. So, so, so Walker, in some ways, is trying to displace uh, Jefferson um, as uh, an American founder and install something else because the claim is that to follow Jefferson is not leading you down the road in which you can fully embody the demand of the Declaration, which is why he asked at the end of Article 4, look, do you understand the words of your Declaration? Right? And so in this regard, Walker is very subtly working on a founder that is quite central to the American imaginary in order to move his readers and his listeners to a position that they never thought that they uh, uh, that they never imagined, which is, is that we should put Jefferson to the side uh, and install what I'm offering up uh, in its place. And Jamel Bowie, you know, David Walkner's appeal, it's situated in a broader battle by free African-Americans to secure equal citizenship rights in antebellum America. You discuss this a bit in your one of your opening answers where you leverage the scholarship of, of Kate Mazur, I think also of uh, Martha Jones's uh, classic work, work uh, Birthright Citizens in this regard. Can you just talk a little bit about the pre-Civil War context for African-Americans to place just some historical context around uh, David Walker's work here, and then also the work of some of the thinkers we're going to transition to in, in a little bit. All right, sure. Um, the, so the, the thing to, I think, remember, um, or to know, if you don't know, is that there are large free populations of Black Americans throughout what is the United States. They're present in, certainly in, in pretty much every state of the North and the old Northwest, like my current Ohio, um, uh, th those regions. 
but also in parts of Virginia. Like there are free blacks in slaveholding places um, of the country as well. And those people, like any people, are trying to live their lives. But the, the, the issue for them um, is that key rights that white Americans take for granted, for example, the ability to move between state borders, the ability to settle in new places, um, uh, the ability to earn a living, the ability to you know, disembark uh, on uh, a port down south and not have your freedom taken from you. All of these things are up in the air. They're, they're highly contested. You have states like Ohio, for example, that pass laws um, attempting to restrict the migration of Black Americans. Charleston, just seven years before um, uh, Walker's appeal, South Carolina passes a law that essentially mandates that all uh, Black Americans uh, who are disembarked from ports in the state have to be jailed uh, to prevent them from like mixing with the Black population uh, in Charleston in particular. Um, so you have these restrictions on Black freedom. You have the fact that although you these free Black populations are not directly touched by slavery because blackness has become this sort of like badge of slavery in the country. It also is a limit on their ability to operate as equals in society. In states like New York, you have, you know, the this is Jacksonian America. And so the expansion of the franchise among white men is happening alongside a restriction of the franchise from other groups, black Americans, black men in particular, also um, uh, women in some places. So kind of the, the political context here is one in which the ability of Black Americans to simply like live in this society is like highly contested. Their place in this society is highly contested. The idea that they belong to it um, is very much contested. And so it's 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 an all of this right that Walker uh, is making his making his appeal, and 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 there are other. Um, uh, there's a lot else happening throughout the country as well with regards to the political activism of Black Americans. And so, Melvin Rogers, we have a question from uh, Juliana in the audience. She asked, "Was uh, it just as clarification? Was David Walker against the Declaration, or was his pamphlet more against Jefferson's notes and its vision uh, against African Americans?" Oh, so the pamphlet is against um, a portion of the pamphlet is against uh, Jefferson. Um, but is very much in favor of the Declaration. Um, and in fact, uh, one might say that Walker doesn't take the logic of the Declaration to its conclusion, because if, it, if he did that, he would, from beginning to end of his uh, a pamphlet, uh, you know, argue for revolution, argue for separation. But in fact, he stops short of, of that because part of what he's trying to uh, sort of stimulate in his, in his, in his white readers and listeners um, is he wants them to think in terms of an if-then proposition. That, that if it is the case that you continue down this road with respect to your treatment of African-Americans, then they have every right you know, uh, to uh, revolt and to revolt violently. A and that revolt, will not be an entailment of ideas that they that they got from nowhere. It would be an entailment um, of 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 America's very defense of 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 freedom and uh, freedom and equality. Um, the other thing I would say, which goes back, I think, to uh, some of the points that that Jamel was making, which is, you know that this this context in which walker is is writing, is one in which 
questions around citizenship are up in the air. Um, but it's also a context in which Walker and other African-American intellectuals are trying to get their white readers to see that um, having appropriate laws on the books, very important, um, very central to affirming the rights of, of, of Black people, um, but they would be meaningless if you don't simultaneously have a culture in which the humanity of African-Americans are in circulation, rather than the existing culture to which Jefferson contributed, uh, in which uh, African-Americans are uh, barely seen, uh, if they're seen at all, as humans. Well, thank you for that great question, Juliana. Jamel, you know, one question to you is, you know, what do you think our audience can learn more broadly about America and American political development by studying primary sources, by studying history, by studying key figures like David Walker and his appeal? Um, before, before I get that, I want to actually wanted to add to Professor Rogers' answer there, and this is drawing from the book, um, which is that you you situate Walker and others of this period within the tradition of like republicanism, republican ideology, and in particular, you know, under in in um, republican ideology as it, as being articulated in that moment, um, there is this strong belief that uh, institutions of uh, institutions and mechanisms meant to kind of encourage uh, non domination and liberty hinge on like the the existence of civic virtue in the people. And, you, and, the, and the, the founding fathers are constantly going on about virtue, about this as being a necessary part um, of this, this experiment. And the, the, the argument you make, Professor Rogers, which I find very uh, interesting, um, is that part of what Walker and this community of thinkers is trying to do um, is sort of quit republicanism in dialogue with the question of racism and race hierarchy like what does republicanism what does civic virtue demand and require uh in conditions when a portion of the people are subject not simply to unjust laws but also a set of attitudes and perceptions and beliefs that um that are an obstacle to their ability to live freely and flourish in the society uh, and that i think is like worth and then sort of gets gets to gets to the question um you asked Tom as well, um, kind of the the value of studying primary sources and, and studying history and such. For me, at the one of the things is getting a sense of how people in the past perceive the world and perceive the kinds of questions and dilemmas that faced them. And to the extent that that's useful for us. It's not because you can draw a one-to-one -one analogy or anything like that, but because simply examining how people of the past confronted their own time, um, uh, their patterns of thought, the resources they relied on, these sorts of things, um, can help us think through the kinds of problems and issues and dilemmas and questions we ourselves face. That's sort of the that's like the operative thing there, not the past, not as a map, but um, uh, the past as sort of like a, a set of, uh, you know, helpful anecdotes. Absolutely. Helpful anecdotes. I like that. And uh, Professor Rogers, please feel free to, you know, weigh in or respond to anything uh, Jamel had to say about sort of reflections on republicanism, civic virtue, racism. 
Um, and, you know, from there, I'd love to transition from David Walker, although I feel like we could talk about him for basically the entire hour, to some of the other thinkers in your book, maybe beginning with a good contrast, which is uh, Martin Delaney and his vision of racial separation um, and how he deals with many of the same problems that David Walker is dealing with, but reaches sort of different conclusions about what the future of the African-American community should look like. So any anything on republicanism, civic virtue, and then maybe place on the table also, begin to place on the table the thinking of Martin Delaney as well. All right. So so I would say a couple of things about the sort of republicanism uh, 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 point. Um, I'm glad you brought that out. Um, so republicanism here, what we're talking about is the um, political philosophy uh, known as republicanism that has its roots in um, uh, 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 ancient Greece and uh, Rome, not uh, Republican, the Republican Party. Um, but the but this sort of philosophical idea um, is is sort of held together um, by sort of by sort of two ideas. The first is the importance of civic virtue to uh, a healthy political society. You want people to be uh, civically active and involved, and thus they need uh, the requisite habits and sensibilities to be involved, right? But the reason why that matters is because it keeps them alert and on guard against those practices that would endanger their freedom, Uh, those practices that would leave you at the arbitrary mercy of another whether it's internally or whether uh, it's by another polity, another political society, and thus render you uh, in a position of domination. So basically what you want to do then is to have institutions structured in such a way that that sort of uh, uh, reflect uh, your freedom um, that properly situates you in the political process so that those institutions can track your interests and concerns. And you want to constantly be alive, um, 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 alive and awake to the potential, the potential dangers. And one of the things that, that these figures, these African-American thinkers uh, sort of bring to the table is the idea that, that, that look, my willingness and my interest in respecting your freedom partly depends on me regarding you as a member of the community and being taken by the community as being a member of it. And that partly depends on the ideas that are in circulation about you. Um, And in the case of African-Americans, they were not viewed as being members of the community. And so when they engage in a sort of critical evaluation of the United States and the practices of slavery, they are both challenging the laws and institutional structures on the books, but they are also simultaneously challenging the ideas and beliefs and habits that are in circulation that habituate white Americans to disregard them as human beings. And the thought was that you have to challenge both of these in order to, to sort of render stable a racially, a racially just, uh, a racially just society, and and one of the things that comes out of this, and sort of studying these figures of the past, is that what it helps cultivate in us is a kind of uh, a kind of sort of intellectual agility, right? An intellectual agility in the sense that we become aware, as Jamel said, to the ways in which uh, those in the past understood their world and tried to grapple with it. And sometimes that casts into relief things about us that that have developed in a positive direction. And sometimes it casts into relief 
things that have fallen away or that we have lost. Uh, and the necessity um, to try to figure out how to re-enliven them, but in the face of our concerns, in the face of our, in the face of our problems. Now, this idea of re-enlivening things in the face of our concerns and our problems partly depends on whether or not you think your fellows um, are up to the task of being transformed. And, and Martin Delaney, um, who is sort of typically identified with um, the tradition of, uh, of, of Black nationalism, is writing in the 1850s. Um, he got into Harvard Medical School. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. admitted him, and then he was subsequently kicked out because students and faculty um, uh, were simply beside themselves that a Black man was permitted to attend Harvard uh, Medical School lectures. Um, and in 1850, we get the Fugitive Slave Law. Um, and so in 1852, um, Martin Delaney writes his very uh, important uh, treatise, The Condition, Elevation, Immigration, and Destiny of the Colored People. And this is a document, um, a treatise in which he argues that, that because the condition, the first word in that title, because the condition of African-Americans is one in which they are not recognized as political uh, equals, it means that they cannot participate in the political system and thus provide for their own elevation. And thus, that's the second word in the title, and thus they need to leave. Uh, they need to immigrate, which is, which is the third uh, word. And if they do that um, and go elsewhere, they then can provide for their own political destiny. The, which is the final word in that uh, in that title, and so Delaney did not see the United States as susceptible to transformation. But that's because, uh, quite pessimistically, Delaney thought that anti-black racism, or what we would call anti-black racism, was constitutive of the American polity and the political identity of 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 the United States. It's um, yeah. Please, Jamal. In some context here, there's like. I know worth worth knowing for the audience is that you know around the time of the Fugitive Slave Act, sort of the decade before, you see kind of a, a a revitalization of the colonization movement. There's the American Colonization Society, which sort of which sort of I guess technically you know it's technically an anti-slavery group, right? Like opposed to slavery, but its solution is to colonize blacks uh, back in Africa. And there's a real debate within. Black communities across the country, but sort of what what ought to be our relationship to the question of colonization? What ought to be our, our relationship to this question of of leaving the country? And so um, uh, Delaney is saying is is taking this pessimistic view, right? That this country is not open to meaningful change, uh, and so we our freedom will be found elsewhere. Um, but there are real opponents to this view saying this is sort of the only country that we have, basically. Um, uh, and so we can't, you know, for, for kind of broader reasons, we cannot leave. For tactical reasons, we cannot leave. Um, there's a sense amongst uh, many African Americans that the colonization movement, which counts it among its members, like slave owners, is sort of this stalking force for the power of slaveholders in the federal government. So we can't we can't give an inch, but I feel like this this is sort of like an important piece of context that there's like this live debate happening over whether Black Americans should stay. And there's by by the 1840s, Liberia is already in existence. There is the the British colony in Sierra Leone. Um, Haiti uh, is independent, uh, and so there are options 
Um, it's not as if this is a theoretical thing. It's like there are specific places we could go uh, if we no longer want to be here. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the key figures that's, you know, uh, uh, contrasting with Martin Delaney is Frederick Douglass and his vision for the future of America. Um, maybe, Jamel, if you want to place on the table a little bit about his his vision and how it contrasts with what we've been talking about with, with Martin Delaney. Well, you know, Douglas um, and Professor Rogers can speak to this as well. Douglas very much believes in the um, in the malleability of what the United States is. Does not believe it is a set thing. Does not believe its people are a set thing, um, and sees uh, in a lot of ways the the kind of genius of the United States is precisely that it can be it it can be changed and is always sort of changing. Is always in this process of becoming something else. That's a process that can be acted upon. Um, uh, later, you know, after the Civil War, he gives this speech, which I've, I've, I've written about before, um, called uh, the Composite Nation, where he sort of adopting a kind of uh, uh, na- sort of ideological nationalism, you might say, uh, is articulating a vision of the United States as a beacon for of freedom for all different kinds of people, all different types of people. He includes white Americans, black Americans as well, but he also includes um, you know people we would identify as Asian American. There's a very expansive view of what the country is, and uh, for Douglas, you know, part of political struggle is acting to push the country in this direction and to use both. Um, the power of rhetoric, um, of practical politics, of all the tools in the toolbox um, to affect this kind of change. Um, and this is a, I mean, what's interesting to Douglas, interesting to me about Douglas is that he lives this relatively long life. And by the end of it, he is witnessing, he's observing the rise of Jim Crow, like seeing these institutions being constructed. He's, he's both experienced the end of slavery as an institution and is also experiencing the, um, the this renewed and new kind of racial domination and still maintains this belief in the uh, ability of the United States to be something um, quite different than what it appeared to be uh, at the end of his life. Absolutely. And that's a great transition. Professor Rogers, I mean, you really, you can contrast sort of the pessimism with Delaney with what you describe as the faith of Frederick Douglass and then later uh, Anna Julia Cooper in her 1892 work of Voice from the South. Can you talk a little bit about those contrastic visions and especially with Cooper bringing us up now all the way to 1892 into the Gilded Age and to the rise of Jim Crow? Right, right. So we're, so we're on the move now. We're about to we're about to get into the to the twentieth century, so I mean the, the the thing I you know the thing I would say um, about Martin Delaney I just want to be very clear about this with respect to the book uh, Delaney's argument about immigration wasn't his final stance um, when the Civil War uh, erupts and just and just follow the argument here when the Civil War erupts it now appears to Martin Delaney that there is a crisis taking place at the very heart of the nation, that the nation is now trying to really decide what will its civic identity be. And so he's he's now in the Union Army. He is uh, a general. He is trying to enlist people 
Um, when Reconstruction collapses, Delaney uh, falls back, not as aggressively, but he falls back to this earlier position. Delaney himself was very sus- suspicious of the American Colonization Society. He and Walker both agree that that society was really only interested in removing free Blacks um, so that, so that uh, um, uh, uh, white Americans could be left um, to continue their practices of domination uh, of those Blacks who were enslaved uh, in, uh, in the South. But Jamel is right that there was this lively debate around colonization and, and where Black people should go. And that debate was premised on uh, whether or not one thought um, that the United States politically, uh, that the United States morally was capable of being something otherwise. And someone like Douglas, part of what Douglas, and this is sort of a crude example, but I think it captures it, sort of when we think about the legitimacy of American politics, which it basically means here, what makes it worthy of, uh, of, of obedience and commitment? Um, the elections are a perfect place to capture this. You lose, but the thought is, is that it's not a final loss. You can come back and do it again. And the, the notion behind that is that the reason why you can come back and do it again is because every election, every law, never fully exhausts and fully define what the American people is. And Douglas picks up on that idea as the engine that drives the American system, and he invests a great deal himself of energy in that as the basis for his own argument that this nation can become uh, otherwise. But the thing that he, you know, Anna Julia Cooper is writing at the tail end of uh, of the 19th century, um, and she is sort of reflecting also um, on the status of Black people in the United States. Um, And she, in a voice from the South, she's trying to make sense of, you know, how do we understand um, one's commitment uh, to a belief that is undermined by all of the evidence that that you have around you? And one of the things that she discloses is that um, one of the conditions of making a belief true is first your commitment and investment in it. And she thinks that this is especially the case uh, of, of political struggles and, uh, uh, and political beliefs in one society. Douglas thought this as well. And so they, they, first, they, they both thought that one condition to transforming the nation is believing that it can be transformed. And allowing that belief, acting in the light of that belief in a way that can condition your activity and the activity of your fellows. But if that's the way they're sort of thinking about uh, a political engagement, if that's the way they're thinking about faith, and I said this at the outset, then essentially they're kind of, they're running ahead of the evidence that they need to justify the stance that they're taking. But one of the things I think is quite powerful about it is, is that, you know, as we look around at the variety of political struggles, um, particularly political struggles for justice and freedom and equality, often, you know, the evidence is pointing in the opposite direction, right? And so you name me, um, I I say that with care, so you name me a political struggle um, that is not dependent 
are fueled by this notion of, of faith, this idea of running ahead of the evidence as a condition to bring that vision of society that you have in mind, that you imagine into, into existence. Absolutely. And I mean, just think about your own role as a commentator. I mean, Jamel, how do you wrestle with the type of questions that we see Douglas and, and Delaney and, and Cooper wrestling with here, really sort of how to balance skepticism and sometimes empiricism, empirical reality against the value of faith, aspiration, political imagination as an engine of political and constitutional change? This is why there are, there are a variety of reasons why I've majored in history, a major focus of my column. But like one of them is precisely this: that in the present, or just in sort of day to day life, it is difficult to sort of think expansively and think broadly about the political conditions. Uh, under which you live, and it's very easy. And I see this especially. I'll say, spending a lot, of, spending a lot of time, um, you know, around uh, younger people. I see this especially amongst among younger people, a real pessimism of uh, with regards to the ability of change to happen in any kind of way. And so I I find myself drawn really to nineteenth century American politics as this stage. Where, um, as Professor Rogers says, notes that the 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 evidence for the claim that things could get better is like not <laughs> it's it's not really abundant. Um, uh, it's hard to find, uh, and yet, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, you have through every period uh, Americans struggling for struggling for justice, uh, devoting their lives to the struggle for justice. Um, not knowing how the story is going to end, not knowing if um, uh, they'll ever, not knowing if they'll do anything other than pass the baton to the next generation of people. And I think that in that, in those examples, in those stories, um, there is quite a bit for us to learn. I um, mean, also, it's it, it's it's um, it, it's it's something that can help us cultivate our own. Um, imaginations about what we're doing uh, in the present. I, I often feel that there is a, a lack of political imagination, that we're so um, stuck in sort of a set of recurring problems that it's hard to see beyond that. Um, and uh, looking looking at the past, looking at this particular period, really, I think, is a, is a useful way to try to help break out of that. What a, what a beautiful reflection on the, the value of history in, in, in current discourse. And here's a question from, from the audience here from Maurice uh, Good, uh, Goodman. You can go to either of you who wants to jump in. Uh, could the speakers talk about James Fortin um, and his role in fighting slavery and where he counts, in, where, he sh- where we should put him in sort of the pantheon of uh, key African-American figures? Right, sure. I mean, James Fortin um, is is also um, this 19th century figure. He's part of these wider debates and an attempt to sort of, you know, deal a blow to the institution of uh, of slavery. Um, uh, he is uh, very much uh, involved um, uh, in um, uh, the sort of the sort of the sort of the, the sort of wider discourse of uh, of abolitionism. I mean, I don't, you know, there are a number of figures around this around this time that are engaged in this. You know, um, in the book, uh, 
Uh, I don't discuss them all. You know, James Fortin appears uh, quite briefly, as, as does, you know, Henry Highland Garnett, another important figure, as does Alexander Crummel, another important figure. Um, and, and so many of the figures that I tend to, even in the 19th century, are taken really as kind of representative figures. But the, the, the thought is that were one interested in telling uh, a wider story with a wider cast of characters, the thought is that they should be able to fit within um, this sort of conceptual, this kind of philosophical historical framework that I've uh, that I've put in uh, place, and they should also fit within the in the sort of analytic terms that I've that I've sort of put in place as a way to describe what it is they take themselves to be doing as they engage in uh, attacking both the institution of slavery and, importantly, the ideas and practices that are in circulation that make slavery uh, possible. And Professor Rogers, you know, two figures you have that straddle the the 19th and 20th centuries are Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about their work and sort of the effect that they were looking to have on political discourse I'd say especially on, on, on their white audiences as well. And sort of, you talk about the powerfully of the role of how their, their vision, sort of the forces of sympathy and shame they hoped might play in political transformation. Can you offer some reflections both on, on, on Wells and, and, and Du Bois and sort of, uh, uh, sort of the, the audiences they had in mind and, and, and the visions of change they were trying to bring? Right. So, so it's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I try to argue in the book is that as these figures are trying to imagine a new configuration of the United States, the people, there's a question about how do you move your audience to embrace these new and expanded uh, views of the United States. But that question is parasitic on a prior one, which is, well, how are you thinking about your audience and their capacities? And one of the things that you discover is that figures from the 19th century into the 20th century um, sort of have a very robust uh, and intricate view about human nature. Uh, They think that human nature is malleable, uh, and they think that the ways in which you begin to shape it um, have something to do with touching um, uh, the emotions or the sentiments uh, of your audience. But emotions uh, for these figures are not these sort of eruptive things. They think that emotions themselves are judgments of value about the world, right? So I'll give you a crude example here. You know, if you're at a funeral for a loved one and you're crying, you're experiencing grief, were I to press you about why you're crying, why you're experiencing grief, obviously it'd be inappropriate at the funeral, but were I to press you on it, you would be able to give me an account of the place of that person in your life. And that's because your grief is a judgment of value. And so these figures thought that. Um, and Ida B. Wells and uh, Du Bois, uh, Ida B. Wells writing the bit of her that I sort of focus on uh, is the tail end of uh, of the of the nineteenth of the nineteenth century, and she's dealing with lynching, and she is trying to figure out how to move her uh, uh, her readers, how to move. Um, the American consciousness to a position of moral rectitude, a kind of uprightness. Um, And one of the things that she attempts to do is to use the horror of lynching uh, as a means to generate revulsion in her audience. She wants them to recoil, to pull back uh, from this. 
And she has no problem attempting to sort of shame the audience and the United States at the very, at the very time, at the very moment in which, you, which the United States is claiming for itself um, uh, uh, this sense of being uh, developed as, as a civilization. And Du Bois, too, in his text of 1903, The Souls of Black Folk, um, now in the 20th century, Du Bois, in that text, uh, is also relying on um, uh, uh, both uh, sympathetic identification with African Americans who, he argues, are trying to make a way for themselves, um, which ought to be the entailment of freedom. And he's sort of using that identification in a way that can sort of shame his readers. Shame his readers, why? Because the question emerges, well, why are Black, Black Americans not flourishing? Well, it has everything to do um, with Jim Crow and the sort of new expression of white supremacy through uh, Jim Crow. And the thought was that you can, you know, the idea was that these emotions could work to move their, to move their audience. That's not the only thing. Right? These figures, both of these figures, are on the ground working, engaged in activism, um, but they're always, again, keeping these two modes in view, this kind of activism and mobilization on the one hand, institutional development on the other, and the sense that you want to try to reach the interior life of, of those to whom you're appealing as the basis for transformation. Jim Bowie, the, the response there on, on, on Wells and, and, uh, and, and Du Bois you know, gets us thinking about the relationship of law and culture in enforcing racial hierarchy. And I mean, you write quite a bit on both institutional reform and American political culture in your own work. You know, when you think about the battle for freedom and equality, both yesterday and today, what do you think is the relative importance of formal structures like the Constitution, law, things we often cover here at the National Constitution Center, uh, you know, versus non-institutional factors we've discussed today, like civic virtue, social mores, and public opinion? What's sort of the dynamic relationship there? Well, institutions, um, law, uh, forms the forms the ground on which much of political contestation actually happens, right? Sort of the um, uh, the the opening up of the American political system in the wake of, of the Civil War during the Reconstruction period um, is not just you know it's it's obviously like a, it was a good thing, but it also um, uh, enables sort of an entirely new form of political activism and political activity amongst African Americans. And sort of one of the you know, one of the interesting things, right, um, is that when you when you're tracing kind of the long history of the black freedom struggle, you very clearly see the kinds of institutions and relationships and um, uh, opportunities built and taken during this brief period of reconstruction enabled by these changes in constitutional law, these changes in actual sort of in, 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 in federal law, um, uh, you see how those become the foundation for later movements, for later efforts. Um, that you can't reduce this struggle to simply the struggle to, for, for changing laws uh, and and for you know changing this um, uh, the 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 foundation on which these struggles happen. But um, generations of activists have recognized very clearly that this is part part of the battle, right? Um, both in a major way, but also in things we might rec- we might call relatively 
minor. So an example I like, right, is A. Philip Randolph's efforts to win, um, to end the segregation of war industries uh, at the start of the Second World War, really sort of American involvement in the Second World War. In one sense, it's sort of like this isn't like a big, expansive battle, but in another, Randolph recognized that sort of this was not just um, a battle for uh, connecting black workers to well-paying jobs, but also a battle for establishing right the the equal regard of black Americans by the government and also by the public at large, for the public at large to see black Americans as like participating in this effort um, in a full way. And that is that that sort of institutional struggle, um, was also part of a larger ideological struggle, larger for cultural struggle. They all kind of act together. Um, and so I see, you know, I very much see there's someone who writes quite a bit about the Constitution, who writes for quite a bit about law. Um, uh, I think those are not things to be disregarded. Those are things to be taken very seriously as part of the, um, uh, taken very seriously in the sense that changing them is part of the project. Um, uh, of, of of building a more you know free and equal society. And Melvin Rogers, the last question to you. I'll end uh, our discussion where you end with with James Baldwin, and you you describe his vision as one of faith without redemption. Uh, just say a little bit. What do you, what do you mean by that? And also, why did you choose to end your account uh, with with James Baldwin and his vision? So I you know I decided to to end the book. Um, with James Baldwin is because throughout the book, I'm tracing this kind of aspirational politics of these African-American thinkers. And aspirational politics fits very nicely with, it articulates well with um, our national preoccupation with our exceptionalism. Um, And it can easily be sort of co-opted in this way. And so I wanted to turn at the end of the book um, to what has been developing up until that point, but that's crystallized in Baldwin and, and which is part of, which sort of sort of illuminates the title, The Dark and Light of Faith. I wanted to, to sort of turn to this kind of chastened aspirational politics in which Baldwin sort of sees um, slavery and white supremacy um, as those factors that in some sense have, it's just, it's just sort of scarred the soul of the nation uh, and it has scarred all of us. And uh, there is no way to think about, for Baldwin, our affirmative gestures in response to racial inequality, independent of the reminder of that scar, of that trauma. And so what Baldwin is trying to resist, I sort of contrast him to another form of aspirational politics that's far more optimistic, that fits with the romantic uh, uh, side of the story uh, that you see in, in Gunnar Milo's work, The American Dilemma in 1944, as he's reflecting on the Negro problem, as he calls it. Um, and, and what you see um, uh, in Baldwin is someone that is trying to get his Americans, his American counterparts to take seriously that, look, our racial history matters, but our racial history has scarred us, and we don't deal with the persistence of white supremacy by trying to ignore it. Um, the way we deal with it is to sort of read our affirmative gestures in law and politics and culture through the trauma of of Black life and the trauma of this country. And if you do that, Baldwin says, you don't get redemption. Because redemption would wipe away, in his mind, 
um, um, would wipe away the sins of that tragedy. Uh, instead, he recommends that what you get um, are a series of, uh, of atoning practices because atonement is always about keeping in view the problem, about the way it sort of reverberates across time, and the way in which our response to it um, uh, um, sharpens our civic skill set. And that in sharpening our civic skill set, we might be able to communicate new sources of care and concern uh, uh, to uh, to one another. So I so, so I conclude in, uh, in 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 that way because I think that this is the overall lesson uh, of 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 the tradition, rather than the more sort of optimistic story about transformation um, that we typically uh, that we typically um, uh, push and hold on to. Thank you so much. And again, the, the, the author is Melvin Rogers. The book is The Darkened Light of Faith. Jamel Bowie, Melvin Rogers. It's an absolute delight. So thank you so much for being here at America's Town Hall. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Lana Ulrich, Bill Pollack, and me, Tanea Tauber. It was engineered by Greg Sheckler. Research was provided by Yara Derise, Cooper Smith, Samson Mostashari, and Lana Ulrich. Check out our full lineup of exciting programs and register to join us virtually at constitutioncenter.org. As always, we'll publish those programs on the podcast, so stay tuned here as well, or watch the videos. They're available in our media library at constitutioncenter.org slash media library. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Live at the National Constitution Center on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber.